Hello, everyone. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. That's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. My conversation with Caitlin Barish, uh, debut novelist that's up there now. Uh, ooh, it's a good one. Great conversation. Interesting person. Came from a family of writers. Yeah, you know, different, isn't it? Yeah. So that's up there now. Go check it out, pnwa.org. And we, or excuse me, authormagazine.org. And speaking of PNWA, we are funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. You can learn more about the PNWA, their yearly writers' conference, their contest, all kinds of good stuff. The classes, all over there at pnwa.org. Speaking of classes, if you're in the Northwest, I will be teaching live and in person, finally, for the first time since all this madness began, uh, May 21st, May 21st, uh, on Saturday, at Barn, Bainbridge Island Resource. And, uh, oh, it's going to be fun. I hope to see you there. Fearless writing. I look forward to it. You can sign up for it. I'll put the link on my website. You can sign up for it there. And wow, so I just finished my conversation with today's guests, guest uh, Charles Whelan. And what an interesting guy. He, well, he's done a lot of stuff, but uh, he's got a new book coming out next week called Write for Your Life. And well, and this week, his memoir, we, uh, family memoir, We Came, We Saw, We Left, well, that's uh, Barnes & Noble best pick for nonfiction. Yeah, he's a busy guy. That's because his uh, the soft cover, the uh, paperback version of that book is coming out. So he's got a lot going on. And we had a great conversation about writing and doing public presentations and making your work accessible. Fascinating guy. He's a senior lecturer and policy fellow at the Rockefeller Center at Dartmouth College, a former correspondent for The Economist and the author of assorted books that attempt to make serious topics more accessible, including Naked Economics, Naked Money, Naked Statistics, the family memoir I just mentioned, We Came, We Saw, We Left, and then, of course, Write for Your Life, a guide to clear and purposeful writing and presentations. So, yeah, here it is, my conversation with the fascinating Charles Whelan. Enjoy. Charles, Charles, welcome. Welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be with you. All right. So you've written a book, Write for Your Life. This is right up my alley. Uh, I agree with a lot of what you say in there. But I want to, before we get to that book, I want to back up and just talk about you a little bit. You're sitting in your very academic looking office i think got lots of books right I, Tell lots books are in my office our listeners can't see it but he's in his office at is this at dartmouth where are you teach? dartmouth and that's not like a zoom screen those are real books yeah, that's right many right. of which i have read <laughs> so you're you're a professor of public policy at dartmouth it sounds like you were trained in economics is that is that where your background right, is my my master's and phd are actually in public policy they're interdisciplinary oh, okay. although the backbone on which those programs were built was economics. So I did right. do the econ sequence at the University of Chicago. But it, it means when you're in public policy that you kind of take economics as a starting point and then discard the rigidities and add in all the other things that we know about the world that economics tends to give short shrift to and right. hopefully you get a more complete understanding. 
So, but you've done a lot of stuff. You're a professor now. You've written many books, um, but you were, well, you, you were a journalist for The Economist, for instance, uh, for a while. Um, when you got, after you got your PhD, what did you do first with that? With that, that was when I was with, yeah, I started writing for The Economist while I was finishing my dissertation. There was actually ah, okay. a, little, a little overlap there. My first journalism stint, I should point out, well, there were two that are actually quite significant, one of which is referenced at the very end of the book. My first straight up newspaper experience was for the Arab Times in Kuwait. Really? Yes. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. So it's an English language newspaper that has an Arabic sister paper. All of the stories were reported in Arabic and then translated by usually people whose mother tongue was Arabic. Then they would give it to people whose mother tongue was English to polish it. That's one of the things I did. And then I also wrote photo captions. And this is what is most relevant. It was one of the most valuable writing exercises I ever had because it was time constrained. I'd get these photos from Reuters over the wire. I had, as I recollect, maybe an hour to turn them around. There are 10 or 12 photos. I had to write self-contained captions because they didn't go with stories for a photo page well, on a manual typewriter. So I had to sit down and write very clearly, relatively quickly, in a way that encapsulated everything in that photo in about an hour. And it's, it was a great exercise. I would think coming from academia, I'm working with, so I, I coach clients and some of my clients right now are getting their PhDs and they're, I'm helping them just deal with the psychological trauma of trying to finish that. And I'm not actually writing, I was working with them, but the, the, the uh, academic writing uh, can be different, I think, than journalism, fiction writing, memoir, so on. Uh, in that I sometimes it seems there's less constraints when I would and I would think that journalism and caption writing would force you to be economical in a way that you weren't maybe wasn't required of you when you were doing your academic writing. Is that fair? Assessment? That is fair. I would go further than you and say much of your academic writing is absolutely awful. Well, I didn't want to say that, but that has been my experience in reading it. <laughs> but I'll say it because it launched my career. Naked <laughs> Economics, which was my first book, was written with no new economic insights by me. I took all, I think economics is a great discipline as a starting right. point. I just took all the ideas that I thought to be the most relevant, most powerful and then wrote about them and described them better than the people who had originated them. So yeah. I almost consider my, I was a translator at the Arab Times. I almost consider myself a translator from academe as well. You were, you were. And I, I remember being a freshman in college and I, writing was the only path I was really interested in with the art specifically, but writing. And I was given a book to read about how the stirrup or the spur ended the dark ages. That was the, the theory of it. And I started reading it. I became furious. I was 18 years old. I was went down to my professor. I said, this writing sucks. Why are you giving this to me? This is no good. Like showed him these pair. But that was my first introduction to it. And I found it incomprehensible in a way. Yeah. But isn't it, I don't want to just, I don't want to keep dwelling on that, but it's almost like there's a, there's a kind of language. It reminds me of listening to people talk about music theory, because I do love music theory and music composition, but it becomes its own language in a way. And you can get caught up in that la that language and wanting to yeah. speak it fluently to the other speakers of that language. Almost like a club where yes. if you can't yeah. understand that, that's your problem. Whereas if you're right. writing for a daily newspaper, if you can't understand it, it's my problem. That's right. And you know, the one of the best lines I've ever seen in a review of, of my books was by The Economist when they reviewed Naked Statistics. It was long after I'd worked for them. And the, I think the opening sentence was something like most book about statistics are written by people who love statistics. 
this this book is different and, and, and I, I do really like statistics but i'm not i don't really care how you calculate a coefficient i'm not so enamored of it that i'm going to use all the jargon i want to write for people who don't necessarily yeah, know statistics and i want to convert you yeah you know i started giving some talks to rotary clubs and one of the talks i would give was about it's called being the author of your life and it's about how writing teaches me how to live but I, it was the most useful talk I gave because at a Rotary Club is filled. I'm used to talking to writers and there's certain things I know they've done. They've sat and down. They've, yeah. they've written, for instance, they love it. I thought, how can I talk to people who may or may not write, who probably don't write about writing? And it was the best way of translating to, to find something universal that any human being could understand. And it was a great practice for me, which is what your book's about. It strikes me in a lot that of ways. That's true. That's right true. Your life. That's what I first thought of when I was starting to read this book. I was like, ah. He has discovered that. So it's called Right for Your Life. And you're you're wanting to, well, I don't want to, you do your pitch. I want to hear how you describe what this book is. Because I, I think it's great. And I think that it's totally, well, anyway, I agree with it. But you, you give your pitch. Well, it's for people who are going to do the kind of writing that's not academic writing. It's professional writing. And it's not academic writing either as academics or people who are in school. We can come back to why I think right. a lot of the, way we're taught to write in school is maybe by necessity artificial it's right for your life like for your life when you go out you're going to be writing because you need to raise money for a new playground you're going to be writing because your landlord cheated you out of 250 dollars. you're going to be writing because you're suing somebody in small claims court it's like everything you need to do that requires clear communication persuasive communication there is actually a section on on uh, presentations as yeah. well which to my yeah. mind are not actually that different are you going to say it out loud or you're going to put it on paper. Yeah. But in any event, you're going to be doing this, writing or speaking, because there's some objective and it is other than getting a B plus, right? Which yeah. is a very artificial. And the book then backs out of that. Okay, how do you write in a way that's going to get you what you want? The refund from the landlord, the new playground, the, the big donation. That's the premise. Yeah, and it's really true. I, I, I have a lot of gripes. I remember sitting with my son's, elementary school teacher they're going to teach him how to write and I was like well I do do this this is what I do you know I would recommend you letting them write about anything that interests them and they were like what I was like do you not know that every book that you teach was written by someone who loved that thing that they were writing about like that is the fuel uh, leading it and but that's really in a way the premise because you're saying among other things if you are writing for your life, you're saying you want this thing to happen. You are motivated by the end result of what you're writing. And so how do you do that? But the motivation is important. Yeah. Right. And everything's going to follow from that. I make a lot of comparisons to the book to architecture. What are you going to use That's this right. building for? Right. right? right. Like, and I don't care how beautiful the exterior is. You know, if the classrooms are not functional, you've built a lousy building. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're, purpose is to get the money back it's got to be persuasive it's going to have to uh, delineate the kinds of things you think your landlord did that were improper and the measure of success is not whether it's an iambic pentameter or how long it is or how short it is or whether you can translate it into other languages it's whether the person reading it has the response that is consistent with what you're trying to achieve did and and i and it, as, as i understand it this book in a way like a lot of really cool things began as something very practical that you were just trying to help your students. So you teach undergraduate and graduate. And so 
quick story. When I was 15, I got an internship at PM Magazine, which was a Providence local television show. Matt Lauer was one of their early, but I was 15. I got this internship. I was sitting there and the job they gave me said, we want you to read the letters that our viewers have sent to us. So I'm 15. I wanted to be a writer, but I, uh, these were adults who were writing this letter. I thought, well, adults, you know, I started reading these letters and I was like, oh my God, like this, what they, do they even know English? I was stunned by what I was reading. And it was my first glimpse into the spectrum of people's language yeah, my wife is, <laughs> my, yeah, my wife is an elementary school principal, and she will sometimes show me this grammatically incorrect, long run-on sense that's not clear, and she'll say that person is applying for a job teaching writing. Yeah, you know, like they, you know, these are job applicants. You know, part of the, what they're writing is to impress the person doing the hiring. Right. So, yeah, I wrote actually all of my books were written to fill what I perceived as a void. So if we go back to Naked Economics, yeah. I did not set out to write that book. I was teaching a book, uh, class on economics to journalists at Medill, actually. I, I was trying to write a book on the gambling industry that nobody wanted. I called <laughs> my agent and I said, look, you know publishing better than I. I need a book on econ that just covers the important concepts that'll make them really like econ. She, there's this pause and she says, I don't think that exists, but you're going to write it. And it's going to be called Economics for Poets. It became Naked Economics, right. putting naked in the title, Achieves What I Want, which yeah, is good. Yeah. <laughs> but the writing, as you said, the writing book started exactly the same. I was teaching graduate students. They needed to be better policy writers, not academic. So they needed right. to write more succinctly, more persuasively. I went out and looked for a book. And there are lots of books on writing, as you know, but they're writing fiction, they're grammar, they're, you know, elements of style and copy editing yeah. and I think Stephen King's book is quite nice, but it's appended to his autobiography where he gets hit by a van. So I, like, right. I couldn't find a book that I would give to my students. So yes, I started keeping a list of things that will make for better, more effective writing. And it got to like 20, then 25, and I would pass it out every term. And eventually when that other book didn't come along, I said, you know what? These suggestions can be filled out and that will be right for your life. Yeah. And it, it reminds me, I, I judge a contest every year in memoir and I, I, the, my subject is usually memoir and short personal essay. And what I found is, and this is what I write primarily is memoir, personal essay, that reading stuff that is struggling, that is unpolished, that isn't working has been more instructive to me often than reading the best stuff. Seeing what isn't working has taught me so much about what does work. Does that make yeah, sense? And, yeah. And in part, because when you see the best stuff, it's not obvious what makes it so good. Right. Right. You know, like the bad sentences have been removed. The examples are so, they follow so naturally from the text that you just kind of go, it's like, oh, that's a yeah. funny story. You don't realize that choosing that story was part of the writing process. Yeah. I, I had kind of an experience with both, which is when I was with The Economist, and actually throughout my life, I've had the privilege of fantastic editors, but the way that editor, editing process was so quick, I would send things overnight on Tuesday and they come back Wednesday and my prose wasn't terrible, but it came back Wednesday better. And so I, in my mind, I could say, all right, well, what is it about that it got it from 903 words to 820 and it reads better and more clear and, and every clearer yeah. and everything else. So I kind of watched that process and learned from it. What did you learn though? Like if you had to take away 
because I, I started when I learned a lot when I would write a 400 word essay every day. So I was writing and publishing and I was like, okay, I want to tell stories. Well, can I really tell a story in 400 words? Yeah, I can. But I was like, then I got to pare it down to just what, so what, like, what do you, what did you notice, for instance, that you thought you were doing that you kept doing that you realized you didn't need to do say that the editor was catching? Was it something that simple maybe? Yeah. Sometimes over explaining. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. repeating what I've just said. And whereas when yeah. you say it once, it's actually clearer. Yeah. Certainly, you know, long sentences, making them short, sometimes taking compound sentences and breaking them into smaller, shorter mm -hmm. sentences, which is, you'd think that reads more, you know, kind of like dumbed down. Yeah. Actually, it often makes it more emphatic. Um, some Using rhetorical questions are really nice and often very quick ways to transition. So something as simple as why isn't that the case? Or why do economists think that's wrong? And now suddenly you can pivot very right. quickly, as opposed to lots of economists think this might be right. You know, it's, it's kind of kind of a mushy sentence. Yeah. The examples always stayed in. The great quotes always stayed in because what makes it a great quote or a great example is it so beautifully encapsulates some larger point that would take long to explain. So I come, I never remember having too many examples. I don't ever remember. Sometimes you trim a quote down to, to right. its essence, just the first right. sentence. But I don't ever remember somebody saying, use fewer quotes, quotes, use fewer examples. It was always like less of you and more <laughs> of these other people. Why? Because you're writing about these other people. Yeah, yeah. And so you hand out these 25 things. I, I've had this experience when I teach, but I don't know if it works because if you would hand these things out right away. But did you see it having an effect? In other words, did you see your students writing improve through? Were you able to watch it actually shift through the course of a semester? Yes. So the one, particularly examples, like it's amazing how using examples can take pedestrian writing because most of my students, their grammar is pretty good. I'm, I'm right, not getting at that point, sure. egregiously bad sentences. Right. I get the occasional bad sentence, but not a whole collection of them. So instead it just feels kind of flat. When that first draft comes in, I assigned an essay. I think the title was What is Education? And the idea was they're supposed to read a bunch of things about the role that education plays in society and then compare that to their own education and kind of evaluate it. And the first drafts would say something like, you know, I had some really good teachers. I had some really bad teachers. And my comment's like, okay, tell me what the really good yes, teachers are. Yes, yes, yes. And then the second draft comes in, like the really bad teachers fell asleep in the back because I think they'd been drinking. I'm like, okay, that is a good example. Right. You know, and you could do that with a really good teacher. I remember Ms. Gentis, we hatched eggs and I was so excited. And it's the specificity of it. That's right. And so it's, it, it, you can definitely see it get better. And it, the examples, uh, they're not still not good with quotes because they're not reporters. Right. But boy, examples take something from like a three to an eight and a half pretty fast. Evidence. I was telling yeah. my students, don't, yeah. you know, the old show don't tell, but it's like, give me evidence. Say, oh, my house was really boring living in. What does that mean? Boring. Right. What is boring? Show me boring. And it's sometimes, you know, what's interesting. And you, I know you wrote a memoir. And so I'm sure you went through this. When I write memoir, I often say, okay, I know this happened. And I know I reacted this way. Why? Why did I, I have to go back and find out why I did. Why yeah. did I think that was interesting or boring? I, and I have to learn myself. Does that resonate with you? Oh, yes. And I even had journals to, to refer, I don't even have those. <laughs> to refer to, and so the, the memoir was, it's actually a family travel book, but really you're right, at its heart, it's a memoir. It's about our nine month trip as a family around the world. And again, boy, I, my editor at WW Norton was top notch because 
I would say the things that my students were saying, you know, by then the group was tired and in the margin, like show us they were tired. <laughs> yeah. What does you tired know, look DJ, like? Yeah. DJ and Katrina were fighting. Tell you know, show yeah. us the fight. Give us yeah. the fight. Use the dialogue. Right. And, and the next, you know, and eventually what pops in that book are the stories. Yeah. It's there. Speaking of stories. So, all right, I want you to be honest with me. I want you to be honest now. And I'm glad you did it, but you included in this book, the last like third, I guess, is about presentation, about public speaking. Is it in there? Because from the get-go, you said this book needs to be about writing and speaking, or did you finish the writing part and think it's not long enough? <laughs> what else oh, can no. I put in it? No, no, no. The, no, the, no. the original proposal was absolutely right. Because uh, why? My, why? List, Interesting. my list of students had like, and by the way, here are things. So the original list that I've had, right. I also had presentations because in all of my classes, they have to do presentations. I see. Uh, okay. And in fact, that part of presentations probably hews more closely the, to that original list than the writing suggestions because that got more bulked up. But those presentation ones, oh, I gave, because the, for example, the one of the near the end of the recommendations is the kind of just don't finish. And that was because I was tired of watching presentations that finished just as I tried, like, uh, okay. Like, cause they looked like, yeah. <laughs> I guess we're done. I think, I think, yeah, I don't have any. <laughs> okay, yeah, good, done. I'm like, oh my God, that's the worst ending. No, so, no, it always, and for reasons we just discussed, I believe that writing and presentations are way more similar. They are. Than people think. They are both using words to an effect. Oh. And there's actually even kind of a blending. If I pass something out to you and then make a presentation around it, which one is it? I've always felt that um, really good stand-up comedians are like great memoirists because they have they really can't mess around. They've got to get to the point and they have to be vivid. They learn the hard way about showing and not telling in examples and stories. And, yeah, I've, and I've learned a lot. One word, you know, one emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yep. And it falls flat. I mean, they are, they're kind of the poets. of It's exactly the word I was thinking. Yeah. They're like yeah. poets. But so did you learn about, so I love presentations and I love public speaking. It's one of I, things I think I have sort of a natural inclination for, but I've learned it by doing it primarily. But do you think you've learned it more by doing it or more by watching so many of your students get up and you think, I've, go, I've stop, stop, it. no. <laughs> I've learned it in every direction. So <laughs> I was a speech writer at two different points in my right, life. Right, right, right. So yeah. my job before I went back to grad school, so before the economist even was writing speeches for the governor of Maine. Okay. So that's kind of, you're putting words in somebody else's mouth. That's yeah. kind of free PowerPoint, pretty traditional. I'm going to read the speech kind of thing, but the same lessons, it's got to be succinct. It's got to know its audience got to use stories and so on. And then later on, while I was already at Dartmouth, I just kind of, as a side hustle, wrote speeches for Mayor Daley after he left his mayoral. That was your and, side hustle? Oh, after, yeah. after he left. Okay. <laughs> well, no, he did. Uh, he finished up as the mayor. I wrote one speech for him as mayor, kind of one of his final speeches, because it was to the Economic Club of Chicago. And then I wrote all uh, of his speeches during the year that he went on the lecture circuit. I, I see. Okay. Yeah. I see. So, yeah, that's, you know what just reminded me of, I, I had a client who her job was writing TED Talks for people. And the and this, I didn't realize A, people other than the ones doing the talking wrote it, but B, her thing was she did them for scientists because scientists would always have a TED Talk together. She said, oh my God, 
they don't even know what a story they have no idea what a no. story is and you and they, absolutely yeah. have to have a story in a public when you're doing presentation story i've learned this i got a keynote coming up so i'm just thinking i'm going to tell that story and that story and that story and then i'm going to link story is i think your go-to i don't yeah. know if you feel that and, way. well yes and i think the other thing that scientists as a subset of academics probably struggle with is they're going to say 10 or 17 minutes. Well, I can't, this is too important. I can't, it can't. Do right, right, right. I'm like, look, you know, if you were in front of the president of the United States, you'd probably have three. So right. you're going to have to learn to do it. Back when I was at the university of Chicago with grad students, they would do a policy proposal, say shifting the fleet of buses in Chicago to hydrogen or something like that. They would have to write a policy memo, which was the audience was the staff of say the mayor or the right. speaker of the house or something. So someone with a technical knowledge of this, and that's got to have all the data. It's got to be a persuasive case. That could be 25 or 30 pages because they're deep into this. And then they got to do the one pager, which goes to the mayor or goes to the senator. And that one pager does not need to go as deep into the weeds because the mayor doesn't care what elasticity means, right? right? right but it's got to right. be so different audience, different deliverable. Yeah. And then they had to write an op-ed that was actually graded by my wife, not by me, because I was working with them on the projects. I knew too much. Right. So stone cold, I'd say, read this and tell me what you think, because right. that's what an op-ed reader does. Right. And if she's like, wow, this sounds really expensive. I'm like, no, no, no it pays for itself. She'd say, well, it doesn't say that. Like, okay, that's a bad op-ed. <laughs> right? So right. how does an informed person who knows nothing, and then the last is they had to have an elevator pitch. They had to have the kind of your mother calls, what's your project? Yeah. Boom, you got 20 seconds. Right. And those are all complementary pieces of this larger mission, which is you're selling hydrogen buses. Right. Uh, it's a good exercise. It's a good way to think. It's actually, it reminds me of selling a book. A lot of what you have to do to sell a book, you start with the whole thing. It kind of whittles down to a smaller and smaller pitch that you need to be able to yeah. understand. Oh, you know what right? I forgot is they also had to do a speech and it was to the Rotary Club. I explicitly Oh, they said, did a Rotary Club speech? <laughs> yeah. Now, we were the Rotary Club. Right. But they had to dress like they were Rotary. They're speaking to their classmates who don't know anything about their particular project. Yeah. So they had to sell it. It had to yeah. be about 20 minutes. They had to take questions and answers. And they would get really creative about it. So, yes, it's funny. That was the presentation piece. And it was the Rotary Club. One thing I love that you put in the public speaking thing was, and I am passionate about this, which is don't read it unless oh. you absolutely have to. Like, I, I listened to this great it was lovely. I was listening to it, but the, it was at a writer's conference and this writer read the whole thing. So her face was down and just that, just not having her attention out changed oh, yeah. it to say nothing of the spontaneity not being there. Yeah, no, there's something about it that is particularly off-putting. Whereas you can, as I say in the book, you can work from an outline and get 85% of the benefit of a written text. It'll keep you on track. It'll make sure yeah. you cover what you cover. The data will be there if you have to thank particular people. But the inflection of your voice, the connection with your audience, the advice I give in the book, which I gave to my students was treat it like a dinner party, right? You're not going to read your remarks. Thank you all for coming to our home tonight. You know, you're going to make eye contact. You're going to be excited. You're going to tell stories. You're going to look around the table and see if they're paying attention. Yeah. That's what you should do. Even if there are 200 people in the room, 500 people in the room. No, you I actually found Zoom very difficult for that reason. Is you yes, can't leave the room. that's right. 
That's right. I, and I, I crave, I'm finally going to do a live event for the first time in a while. I've learned to do it. And it's even harder. It's even harder, Charles, on Zoom, because I like to be funny if I can. I try to make people laugh, usually out of the gate, but they all have to mute themselves. So I, you I have no see, idea. Well, you see them go, ah, ha, ha. But yeah, you know, maybe, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, but I got, you know, here's what I think. Here's what I'm, I'm this is my take. See if, see if you agree. I try to be an optimist. By having to do so many public events through Zoom, it's making me better because I'm having, I don't have the luxury of leaning on the audience reaction that when I finally do get in front of a live audience again, it'll be like a batter swinging two bats before he steps up to the plate. I what think do you think? Am I too optimistic? No, no, I don't think you're too optimistic because I teach, I had to teach for, I don't know, yeah. a year on Zoom and now I'm back in the classroom. Yep. And it is easier, you know, in ways that I wasn't cognizant of before. All right. And so I don't know if I actually picked up any new tools, but I do feel like coming back from Zoom, I'm sharper on the things that can, you can do in person that I probably took for granted or maybe didn't yeah. take full advantage of before. I love also that you mentioned, I, and I, this is critical, I, which is not being afraid of silence. When you give a public, first time I talked, I was like, I can't be silent for one moment. I just talk constantly, but no, you got to be quiet sometimes sometimes yeah i once interviewed larry summers who's famous yeah finding people's heads off if he thinks they're not saying anything smart it was just he and i in front of a pretty large audience and i asked him a question <laughs> and that right that's what like you're feeling uncomfortable i'm feeling uncomfortable. like but it went you know five seconds seven seconds <laughs> wow. and i'm like i know you hurt like what the hell's happening here and yeah and then boom well, what was he doing? He was doing the opposite of what most people just start, blah, 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 you know, they're like just garbage as they kind of think through the answer while they're saying nonsense. Right, right. This was the opposite. Well, I'm going to be silent for five or seven seconds. And now I'm going to answer. There are three points I want to make. And it's like he structured his response, yeah. which he yeah. had. But even beyond what that is, that's that shows great confidence and experience also. But I do think there's also a kind of, thing with the audience of giving a moment to rest within the middle of your maybe asking a question and taking a moment to feel what you've just said yourself to be present with it and in that stillness I still remember I was acting and I was doing a show and I had written it myself and I'm doing it and in the middle of it I'm trying to remember my next line but as it <laughs> happens I'm giving a monologue and it's a thoughtful monologue so I just sat there and said I'm just going to sit and try and think of it and to a one, everybody said the most powerful moment in that show was when you were trying to, you were pausing. I was like, I was, that was a man literally trying to remember, but it struck with me. I thought there was something compelling about someone being present and tuned in, even if they're not talking, but they're a, tuned in with themselves. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. And I think as we look at something like that, we interpret it as gravitas. Yes. Because of what you said about Larry Summers is it requires a certain degree of confidence yeah. to say nothing. And people oh, who are not that kind of people wondering yeah. the answer. It also helps deal with something I write about in the book, which is the um and uh problem. Uh, 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 and usually the problem there, I used to videotape my students and then we'd watch the video together. And it became clear to me that people use those words while they're thinking. Exactly. And the best way to get rid of them is just to do nothing. Yes. It's not, it's not like a tick that you can't stop. It's just okay, stop, think, and you don't have to say something while you're thinking. No. Those ums and uhs are usually when there's some kind of transition of thought. People don't usually say them in the middle of a thought. And yeah. so if you give yourself 
some time to just think and to be comfortable with that silence, then the ums and the uhs tend to go That's away. That's so true, Charles. I hadn't thought of that, but I don't know if I ever did them much, but I don't, I know I don't use them, but I know what I do do is just think. And, it, and if you, but you have to be focused. You can't be nervous. You have to be, you do have to be focused at that moment, but the audience will give it to you. They'll, oh, yes. yes. But they get tired of listening to you also. They sometimes need a break, just a little silence. Okay, well, listen. Okay, the book is called Write for Your Life. Now, uh, if people want to learn about you, you do have your own website. You've written a lot of, you have fiction, memoir, all this interesting nonfiction. But if people are interested in you, is this the sort of thing, I don't know if you do it. Do you ever do like book clubs? Are you that kind of a fellow? I do, yeah. Okay. I, you know, I don't know if people want to do a book club for Write for Your Life. I've done oh, a lot who of book knows? Clubs. Writing, <laughs> writing organizations. Oh, family, right? Yeah, absolutely. Writing clubs. Because I have, to your point, I have written and sold screenplays. I've written fiction. I've written memoir. I've written nonfiction. And I wrote a textbook. Yeah. And I've written speeches. I mean, I don't know how much more there is. <laughs> no, nothing like poetry. Come on. That's next. I can't do poetry. I will never okay. do poetry. It's, it's, a, right. it's just a, a, some, it's lost on me. I wish okay. I had a better appreciation for it. All right. So they, if they want to, they can go, is it, is it, I can't remember. Is it Charles Whelan, Is that your website? Yes. Also okay. nakedeconomics.com. Either one gets you there, but Charles is kind of where they all roll up. All right. Well, listen, I got one more question for you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your thinking cap on. And I want you to finish this sentence. If writing, and we just mentioned it, all the writing you've done, and there's so much of it, but if all that writing has taught you one thing, it's taught you what? If you want to write, then write. <laughs> don't think about it don't 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 go for a run and plan just sit down and type you know that was what i learned from those captions you know the governor when i was writing speeches didn't really care whether i was having a good day or a bad day it was there is just is no substitute for putting pen to paper fingers to the keyboards like you just got to do it yeah yeah boy it, it's so true and the thing that i've learned about that is that the inspiration will come. The in, it will come. Like all the in, good stuff will come, even if you're not there when you start. In other words, you may not be in the mood at that moment, but get interested. Good stuff will come if you put in the time. Yeah, if you show be up, good days and bad days. I mean, there's some times where it's just a slog. Kind of like if you're a runner or something like that. There are days yeah. you go out and you feel fast, and days you feel sluggish. Uh, but if you're, if you're not out there at all, you're not going to become a better runner. And I think even if you have a bad day, it's just not a very productive day, then your mind, we know this, your mind continues to work and you may be doing something else later that day and whatever you struggle with. When I was writing naked, actually all the naked books, naked economics, naked statistics, naked money, there were often points where I'd reach a concept, like how the Fed operates that I knew was really tough to explain. And I'd get to my, I just don't know how I'm gonna explain this. But that would kind of be the end of a productive stretch. And I'm like, tomorrow I'm gonna have to do it. And often later that night, overnight in the morning, yeah. something would come to me. Yeah. It's kind of like I went to bed with a puzzle, yep. explicitly having confronted it. And then the next day I wrote through it. That's how it works. That's you and every novelist, poet, memoirist, <laughs> everybody. That is how that mind works. Charles, you're an interesting guy. It's a really good book. Congratulations. I'm sure there's more great stuff coming from you. Have a good semester. <laughs> yes, <laughs> lots of teaching, lots of teaching. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful talk to you. Yeah, there it is. You got to kind of just do it. But which I mean, you know, if you're there, if you show up, if you show up, it will happen. Don't wait until you're inspired. It's unnecessary. Be there. Get conscious. 
get interested, get curious, and good things happen. It's true. It is true. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? I'll be back again next week with another fabulous conversation. I want to thank my producer, RJ Jeffries. Uh, Just so helpful. To all of you out there, all of you out there, go find something you love to do and do it.